Thank you for joining us for the Lessons from First Naz podcast. Thanks for being here today. I have very much enjoyed being in church with you today. And I'm talking to you who are seated here and to the blessed Holy Spirit who very clearly is here with us today. Did you sense him? Yeah. Uh, I want to say hello to the Facebook family because the Facebook family joins us every week from literally all over the globe, wherever you are. We want, we want you to know we love you and we're glad that you tune in and, and consider yourself a part of us. Um, we would very much like it if every person who ever views via Facebook could at some point actually be here in this place with us because it's hard to do family over the internet, isn't it? Yeah, but, but when you're here and you're a part of this church family, you get fingerprints on you and arms around you and help and a boost when you need it and a comfort when you need it. And the truth is that's available in churches all around the world. So if you're a part of our Facebook family, we want you to know we love and appreciate you. We're honored that you would tune in. But we also want to strongly recommend to you the churches in your local towns where you can find God's people and become a part of them and uh, get your arms around them and they around you. For today, we are who we are gathered here together in the ways that we gather, physically and electronically. And we are here in the presence of God. And it's good to be here, isn't it? Yeah. Well, I tell you what, I'm having a great time this summer because I've been reading my way through the minor prophets of the Old Testament. I'm not saying that you would have a great time if you read your way through the minor prophets, but I'm a Bible nerd, and so I'm kind of enjoying that. And at the same time, I am hard-pressed by it. Because everywhere I turn in the minor prophets, I, I, I have these bells that go off in my head from all of my historical and textual studies. And from just living in America... And I see how these ancient, ancient texts speak very vibrantly, sometimes sadly, sometimes very hopefully, to a contemporary audience of me and my countrymen. So I've, I've been fascinated as we've worked through this series so far this summer, as we started with the, the first of the minor prophets, Hosea. What an incredible book, and I won't preach that message again now, but, but two things that you just got to get a hold of from Hosea's book. If you get a hold of nothing else, it's this. God says, you have no idea how much I want you. You have no idea how much I want you. And in the case of the book of Hosea, he's saying, you have no idea how much I want you back. Why don't you come back to me? We used to be close and you left. Why don't you come back? The problem is when we come back, um, we have this sense of our own brokenness. And and it's an appropriate sense and sometimes an exaggerated sense. But that's the importance of that second message from the book of Hosea. God says, not only do you have no idea how much I want you back, you have no idea what I can do with brokenness. I can redeem it. I can heal it. I can use it as this thing that attracts other people to me. The thing that has been your undoing can be the very thing that fuels your mission in this world if you'll let me heal the brokenness in you. You have no idea what I can do with brokenness when you come back to me. Read the book of Hosea. If you just 
camp out in Hosea for the rest of the summer, you'll probably keep up with us quite well. But we've moved on to the book of Joel. And last week, we took a, a look at the book of Joel, and there are just grasshoppers everywhere, right? It's the, the story of this incredible plague of locusts that, that swept across the land of Judah. So I'm going to be using two terms throughout this whole series. I'll refer to Israel, and I'll refer to Judah. And uh, Israel is, is uh, a word with two meanings. It refers to this one country, but this country went through kind of sort of a civil war. And the northern kingdom that split after that civil war of sorts continued to be referred to as Israel, largely, some other nicknames. And then the southern kingdom that had the, the nation's capital and had the location of all of their religious stuff, the temple, the priesthood, all of those attending things, the royal city, um, all of the important people, it seemed, that, that southern territory became known as Judah or Judea or the area of the Jews, Okay. And the northern kingdom said, well, wait a minute, we're Jews too. But they quit arguing that before long because they were Jews plus whatever the religion of the land was and of their neighbors were. And so they, they uh, very quickly quit being referred to as Jews and um, they, they kind of decided to start their own pseudo-Jewish religion and you know, made a new capital for their new nation, new capital city, and a new temple that they built up there in Samaria. And, and so oftentimes when you're reading through the Bible, both Old and New Testaments, you'll come across the, the word Samaria, and it can refer to that northern kingdom or specifically to the capital city of that northern kingdom. Okay, we've got the northern kingdom, southern kingdom, and the northern kingdom had drifted into this weird uh, combination religion of Judaism plus these other pagan gods, most of them fertility gods. And remember this, you said it already today and you sang it, I will become what I'm beholding, right? We, whatever it is that we, that we rivet our attention to, that thing will soon get our affections and we will soon grant it the ability to influence us. Mm. As they started worshiping fertility gods, guess what became the focus of their lives? Hmm. So God sent prophets to that northern kingdom. He sent prophets to the southern kingdom. And, and early on in the history, you'll, you'll see him saying to the, to the north, hey, the south is still faithful to me and you are not. Be like the southerners. But we don't get very far before God's sending a prophet to the southerners saying, you are just like the northerners. You have chased after other gods. And in and then he, he gives this message through all of the prophets. I want you back. I want you back. If you come back to me, you won't run off the cliff. You can't see where you're headed. Did you guys see that video on Facebook this week of the people in the raft on the river? Did you see this? Okay. I know you're going to go there. So just go ahead and pull your phones out and, and open up Facebook app and put in raft river. And you'll see this raft full of people having a great time who are ignoring all of the signs. And they go over a waterfall. And listen, if you're a whitewater enthusiast, you'll look at it and you'll go, oh, no big deal. I mean, you can, you can right. But we're talking about east of the Mississippi. Rafting has, uh, you know, it's a whole different scale. But uh, they, in fact, did have to rescue these folks. Yeah, that's, uh, that's kind of the signs out there saying danger, waterfall ahead, turn around, beach the craft, all that stuff. That's the prophets 
metaphorically speaking. That's the prophets that God sent to the northern and southern kingdoms. He said, you do not see where you're headed, and I know what's up there. And once you slip over the edge, you can't quickly grab, reverse, and back out of it. You're you're going wherever it takes you. So that place that it takes you, that destruction, many times was viewed as God's wrath. God got mad and just got to the point where he wouldn't be patient anymore, and so he just took out his anger on people. I think that's a, I think that's a pretty poor understanding of the wrath of God, because as we studied last week, and we see in the book of, of the prophet Joel and of others, you can see it in Hosea too, God does not desire to punish. He does not. But he will use discipline and pretty severe discipline, if that's what it takes, to turn us around. The question is, as we get to the book of Joel, studied this last week, how are you going to respond to the big, hard, ugly things in life? Uh, that that uh, book was written about this swarm of locusts that ate literally everything and killed the absolutely killed the agricultural enterprise in their land, which meant for the next two years, at least, they were going to be without food, because no food this year, it all got eaten, all the seeds for next year got eaten, and then if your religion is dependent upon you giving these kinds of gifts to God to make sure that he still likes you and loves you, they suddenly feel very cut off from God, too. I don't know if the big, hard, ugly, hurtful things that happen in this world, these sustained times of of trouble and pain and sorrow in your lives, I don't know if those are, quote, the hand of God. I don't think he works like that, but I'm not a prophet, so I don't get to say. But I do know this. The question of the book of Joel isn't, oh, no, oh, no, what what did we do? The question is, where do we go from here? How do we respond? How How do I respond to the big, hard, ugly hurts in this life? So we studied that a little bit last week, and I want to take another whack at it, because I don't think I did a a good enough job with it last week. Let me read to you uh, chapter 2, verses 12 and 13. Joel chapter 2, 12 and 13. Turn to me now, God says, while there's time. Give me your hearts. Come with fasting and weeping and mourning. Don't tear your clothing in a show of your grief, but tear your hearts instead. Return to the Lord your God, for he's merciful and compassionate, slow to get angry, and filled with unfailing love. He is eager to relent and not to punish. Excuse me. I think what this text is telling us is that it's very important for us to realize what we've done in relationship with God instead of trivializing what we've done. I'm going to say that again because I think it's important. I think this text is calling us to realize what we have done in being unfaithful to God instead of trivializing the ways in which we have been unfaithful to God. Here's what I mean. Um, My observation of religious life in America, I'm not going to say of this body in particular, but as I look at what's happening in religious, particularly Christian life in America, it seems that the version of love, forgiveness, Uh, grace and restoration that we are preaching and living has been turned into this legal formula that I pronounce toward God and then he's obligated to do this for me and I go, okay, and on my way. Sorry, God, I'll even use the word repent, but a, a quick turn to him and say, yeah, it was wrong, I know it, but Jesus died on the cross for me and I claim his blood and so we're good again and go on. 
I think that's trivializing what we have done in being unfaithful to God because of this one thing. Uh, Salvation isn't kind of like a relationship with God. It is an actual relationship with God. And if it's an actual relationship with him, then I can learn a lot about that relationship with him by taking a look at relationships with the people in my life. And I know this, if I have done something that constitutes unfaithfulness to Laura Purcell, a quick, oh yeah, um, sorry, we forgive me, and going on with the assumption that she has, has trivialized whatever it is that has worked its way up the scale to the place that Laura considers it unfaithfulness. And this is going to take more than one little quick, hey, you know how this deal works. You're supposed to give me grace and forgiveness. You're the grace and forgiveness giver, and I'm the grace and forgiveness asker, and I've asked, so you now give, and we're good, right? That is not how it would work in your house either. It wouldn't work that way very many times before at least one of you quit trying to work at it, right? I mean, when we're talking about the kinds of things that that Laura might consider me neglecting her or being unfaithful to her. It's going to take, in order for for this relationship to be restored and healed and healthy again, it's going to take some very real soul-searching on my part, taking a look at exactly the things that I have done and, and why I have done them and why I allowed myself to have done them. I have to stop and consider the levels of hurt that she is experiencing, and and what she has a right to in terms of human dignity, then and only then can I offer her an apology that is worthy of being considered. And when I then would say to her, I'm genuinely sorry that I hurt you, to the place that both she and I can feel my sorrow, I am beginning to get back into relationship with her. You tracking with me? I'm not saying I have, to, I have to eat dust and grovel, but there is an appropriate, wouldn't you agree, there's an appropriate sorrow that, that should seize a person's heart whenever they have proven unfaithful in relationship to a person with whom they've, they've made a commitment. Nod your heads like this, because... There's an appropriate sorrow to that. In Joel's book, he teaches us to to take the time to experience an appropriate sorrow about our unfaithfulness to God. But he doesn't leave us there. All throughout the book, he he talks again about, it's kind of, it's not hidden, but it's, it's not the plainest language in there, but he, he talks in there a few times about early on how the priests and the religion weren't going well. And later on in the book, a restoration of priests and religion. In other words, I think that if we are going to do anything more than trivialize the way that we have responded to God in those, after those big hurts and, and we recognize our own unfaithfulness, Not only does it take an appropriate sorrow, but hear me now. It also requires of us an appropriate return to worship. I think a significant part of the problem, the spiritual problem in America today, is that there are empty seats next to you that used to be full. 
I'm gravely concerned that Americans who take the name of Jesus upon themselves don't think he's worth worshiping every week. I'm gravely concerned. This isn't about me counting heads, because you know what? The board told me they don't want me counting anymore. They take care of things for the denomination, but they told me, we don't want you paying attention to that, because you'll make decisions based on numbers. They don't want me to do that, so I'm not going to. I just know that there are empty seats next to you, and there are people who say, oh, I got all the forgiveness from Jesus. I get all the good. I ask him for all kinds of things, and I think he should give them to me. But they will not even stop what they are doing to worship him. And I will tell you that this is reminiscent of ancient Israel. One of the, but before they ever started falling in love with other gods, they fell out of love with Yahweh God. And they quit showing up for the family times together. And they quit, they quit showing up for the, for the God Awards ceremony where he gets the praise and the applause and the affection that he deserves. This isn't about make America great again. We are not Israel either. But I'm talking to the people of God in the United States of America. However many of us there, there really are. Hear the words and the message of the prophet Joel. There is an appropriate way to respond to our collective and individual neglect and unfaithfulness to God. It's to stop for a moment long enough for an appropriate sorrow to grab us by the lapels and escort us to the feet of a loving God who stands ready to offer grace, but not cheap grace, for cheap apologies. And on the heels of receiving that healing and restoring grace, his people are to return to faithful worship, not when we can squeeze it in, not when it's convenient, not when I feel like I need a little something from God. An appropriate sorrow, appropriate worship, that's how to respond to God and it's how to respond, frankly, to the great big hard, hurtful episodes in our lives. Do you ever wonder, though, how God responds to those great big ugly hurts and sorrows? Do you ever wonder if he's in them? I think we asked that question a little bit last week. I've asked it again a little bit here. I, I don't know if they are uh, caused by him, but I know this. I'm, I know this from my own personal experience, from the promise of the scriptures. The, there is a God who has said, I will never leave you and forsake you. And it means that in the, the, the times of the greatest hurts and hardships in our life, even those that are directly his chastening hand and his discipline, he is right there in the puddle of our tears with us because he is a loving and faithful God. But how does God respond to the big ugly? I think it depends altogether on how we respond. And that's what I want to talk about this morning for just a moment and we'll be done. How does God respond well, if our hearts are hardened, that's one of the options, right, of how you respond to the big, ugly hurts and long, protracted sorrows in your life. 
You can harden your heart and say, where was God when I needed him? If that's the kind of God he is, if he allows these kinds of things and forget him, I'm going on my way. Listen, I, I, I know many of you have had those kinds of hurts in your life that would tempt you to say those things, to feel those things, and to act upon those things, to, to, to harden your heart against the Lord and maybe turn your back on him altogether. I get it. I know there's many people listening today that are listening today via live stream because there's something in their heart that draws them to God, but there's something that makes them not be able to stand to come into places like this and, and maybe be in his presence because of some old hurts and some old wounds and some old and still today anger. You get it? What I read in the scriptures, what I read in the book of Joel is that if our hearts are hardened toward him, God will allow the big, hard uglies to continue because he loves us too much to just say, fine. God never does a fine. It's not in him. Instead, he will do like many of you did as parents. You would try to be gentle at first. And then you would purposely be a little bit less gentle when gentle didn't work. And then, well, sometimes you had to warm up a little bit, right? Because uh, you were upping, up, up in the ante, right? I mean, I knew parents who said their kids, their kids' biggest deal was like they, they wanted their privacy. And so instead of sending their kids to their room, they would make them stay right out with everybody else for a long time. And then eventually, when the kid would not uh, cave in, they said, fine, go to your room. And they went in and took the door off the hinges, took the door into mom and dad's room, said, you get the door back and some privacy when you get an attitude that deserves it. Mm. There's, some, there's some people right now going, ooh, that's good, right then? <laughs> there's some children going, oh, please, God, let my dad be asleep during the sermon again. But when our hearts are hardened, God says, well, I can't just go, whatever, because I love you too much, and so I'm going to have to bring it a little bit. That's how God responds to the great big ugly, to the great big sorrow, to the great big hurt, to the great big discipline, if that's how we respond to it. But if our hearts are softened, I want you to get this. It's such a beautiful and powerful good that I've been just dying all week long to get the chance to share it with you. This is one of the most hopeful passages in all of Scripture. It's become one of my very favorites. Look at Joel chapter 2. Begin reading with verse 25. The Lord says, this is, this is if our hearts soften and, and start moving toward him. Listen to what he says. The Lord says, I'll give you back what you lost to the swarming locusts, to the hopping locusts, to the stripping locusts, and the cutting locusts. It was I who sent this great destroying army against you. But once again, you will have all the food you want, and you will praise the Lord your God at a return to worship. The God who does these miracles for you. And never again will my people be disgraced. Then you will know 
that I am among my people Israel, that I am the Lord, your God. There's no other. Never again will my people be disgraced. I like this better in another translation. It's probably the New International Version that says, I will pay back the years that the locusts have eaten. Somebody needs to feel that today because what you're feeling is only the loss. You see, you revisit the devastation in your life, these great big holes of emptiness that, that you wonder whether they're the punishing hand of God or the permissive hand of God or the neglect of God. You don't know. You just, you just know that there's this big, ugly vacuum where there used to be something good and beautiful and holy. Listen to what the scriptures say. Listen to what God says through this prophet standing in the middle of a devastated nation of people who said, all hope is lost. God, the prophet said, no. Soften your hearts. Start moving back in God's direction and watch what God himself will do. He will show up and say, putting his own name on the line, his own credibility on the line, I will repay the years that the locusts have eaten. The things, the people that you have lost, I am going to repay them to you. If you go on to read this book, it's incredible because he paints the picture of a prosperity that isn't, well, fairy tales don't do it justice. Let's put it that way. From what I've seen in the scriptures and from what I've seen in my own life and in yours, it looks like this. Sometimes there is a, upon return to God, there is an actual prosperity that can be measured and counted and weighed. Sometimes it's, it's, it's literal riches. Sometimes it's a return to physical health. Sometimes it's that exact relationship reconciling. Other times, when God comes and brings his full goodness to bear on us and our lives in, in the shadow of the great big ugly, it, it's, it's not this external thing. Heal the cracked, broken, bleeding places in our hearts and in our minds. As he brings his grace to bear in ways where the old hurts become just memories, but no longer have the hammer that they once had, that they once brought against us. There comes in, right alongside those memories a peace and a comfort that says, what do you know? I lived through it. And I have once again experienced the goodness and the comfort and the peace of God. Sometimes it's mental and emotional like that. And sometimes it's just straight up spiritual. And if, if you don't know what I mean by that compared to the other two things, I'm, I'm just going to tell you, I'm going to fall short in trying to explain that. But it is possible for you to still experience some kind of lack at the physical level or at the relationship level with other human beings but still have a fullness of heart and spirit that produces joy in you. Listen, I think one of the best working person's definitions of peace 
It's just the inner sense of, it's all right. It's okay. It's going to be okay. He's got me. And, and God himself, who doesn't kid himself about how hard and hurtful life in this fallen world is, who doesn't uh, turn a blind eye to the suffering of his children, particularly if he has to get involved in it for disciplinary purposes, this God does not trivialize hurt. He asks us not to trivialize unfaithfulness. He doesn't trivialize hurt, and he comes right alongside it and says, I want you to know that I am personally guaranteeing that I will repay to you the years that the locusts have eaten away in your life. Oh, I love that God. I love that God. I love that God who doesn't say, well, you should have learned your lesson. I love that God who says, well, uh, sometimes they just have to learn the hard way. I love the God who isn't content to say, well, you got what you deserved. This God whose heart is just is also merciful and kind and compassionate. And so he steps into the hurt with us. And in the hurt that lingers after the devastation in our lives, if we just start to turn and look his way, he goes, that's what I'm talking about. That's what I was looking for. Come, let me start rebuilding you, your life, your peace. Sometimes he does it from the inside out, and from, sometimes from the outside in. He's God. He gets to decide the order, not you and me. But I know this much, as soon as your heart begins to turn toward him, God says, that's what I'm talking about, now let's get on with it. And he begins to repay the years that the locusts have eaten. If our hearts are hardened, he says, well, we can do this a little while longer. If our hearts are softened, then he begins to do things like restore the relationship, and he begins to affirm our efforts to be faithful. Your efforts to be faithful are called obedience. Right? He begins to affirm that and encourage that in our lives, and he begins to add blessings beside on top of that because he's good at leading us in the direction of continued faithfulness thereafter. But get this. He's not done with the good stuff yet. When he gets to the place that our hearts have turned and, and he starts to repay the years that the locusts have consumed in our lives, he is not done, and here's why. Because prosperity, as good as it is, is never the end game of God. He likes to use prosperity as a tool in his hands for rewarding his children and for continuing to school faithfulness and thankfulness and love. But prosperity is never his end game because he knows that prosperity always brings with it a very real temptation to then get your eyes off of God and just onto the stuff, just chasing happiness instead of chasing him. And so prosperity itself is never God's end game. God's end game is always close, personal connection. We call it intimacy. It's why all throughout the Old Testament, the New Testament too, God says things through prophets that make you just a little bit uncomfortable because it's like he uses, well, he uses a word that makes you think kind of that he thinks he's married to us. Like that kind of close intimacy, like where sometimes you can't tell where 
you end and your partner begins. That, that level of, of intimacy where two become one, that's the goal of God. Let me show it to you in Joel chapter 3, verse 28. Well, since there's not a 328, that's going to be a problem. How about 2.28? Then after doing all those things, okay, God has just said, I'm going to repay the years that the locusts have eaten. I'm going to look after you so that you are not disgraced again. You have all the food you want. You'll have returned. Listen, did you see that in verse 26? And you will praise the Lord your God. It's not an order. It's not God giving command. It's him describing what it will look like when you have fully returned to him and and when you are reaping the benefits of him repaying the years that the locusts have eaten, there's something that will be happening in your life. You will be praising him. That, That rightful return to the religious expression of this very live spiritual faith of ours. After all that, he says, then after doing all those things, oh, he's got more? Yeah, here it comes. I will pour out my spirit. Upon all people. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your old men will dream dreams. Your young men will see visions. In those days, I'll pour out my spirit even on servants, men and women alike. He then goes kind of apocalyptic in his language and I'll cause. Wonders in the heavens and on the earth, blood and fire and columns of smoke. The sun will become dark. The moon turned to blood before that great and terrible day of the Lord arrives. But everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Listen, the end game of God is always intimacy because it's, it was his first game. It's his only game. God who lived before he created anything as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit lived in perfect community lived in perfect unity, in perfect relationship and fellowship, said there's only one way to do this better than the perfect us, Trinity. That is to create beings who can kind of, sort of become Trinitarian and then choose to live in relationship with us and with one another. God from the very beginning has been intimate and into intimacy and it has been his goal for each one of you with him And for us with one another. It's why it's really important, one more time, that we do this together as a church family. Listen, if this is as simple, if if the practice of your faith is as simple as getting good sermons, there's a lot better preachers than me. The the internet is full of them. Go avail yourselves of, of great speakers easily, if that's all there is to it. But there isn't. And so I want, to, I want to call you one more time into this holy fellowship that is the church of Jesus Christ because it's how God lived when it was just him, them, him, them, the Trinity by themselves and they've opened the sacred circle to allow you and I in. And God doesn't want to end this whole return to him with here, let me just make you healthy and happy and fat and sassy and and ready to make another lap in the desert because you got your eyes on the stuff instead of on me. He calls us back to intimacy with him, to a very real and close fellowship with him that is a lot like being married to a God. Yes, he said when that happens, 
It'll blow your mind. People start having vision, seeing signs. He, he talks in this culture, uh, you know, he talks to this culture that, that looked down upon women and, looked, and, and, and allowed for, for um, classes and uh, you know, slavery and servanthood. He, he says to them, I'll take the people that you don't even think matter and I'll give them as much God as I give to the princes and the royalty and the men and the people with power. I will give all of myself to all of the people. And they will start relating to one another differently and it will change the world around. It will be like this whole world's ending and another one's beginning. When you let me get close and when you come close to me, Man, my heart hungers for that. Is yours? If your heart hungers for that, then, then perhaps each of us and, and us as a church collectively should ask the question, have we trivialized our unfaithfulness to God? Lord, would you help us to realize how far we have drifted. Would you create in us a godly sorrow that brings us back to you? We'll, we'll do our part because we can, we can change the schedule and plan on showing up and worshiping you and that, that appropriate religious practice that schools our inner life. God, you've got to do your part. You've got to pour out your Holy Spirit upon us. How about this? How about we leave the prosperity stuff to him? Let's not even ask for it. Let's leave the prosperity stuff to him, trusting that he knows the right amount to apply for each of us. And we go straight for the end, the thing that he wants the most, which is to fill us with his spirit. And we ask him to come today and to do. Julie, would you come and play some music? I just, I want to close in prayer. You can pray where you are. Um, I'll invite you to stand if you would. Pardon me. If ever there was an appropriate time to kneel before the Lord, it is in a time in which we are asking him, Lord, would you help me? with the stuff of turning to you? Would you help me to repent? I'm not even sure I know how to do that. Would you show me if I have trivialized my drift or my intentional stiff arming of you? Would you show me those, those corners of my heart where I have intentionally hardened them? If I'm harboring any bitterness against you, any anger, would you come and just melt that heart so that we can begin the stuff of, of me turning back to you and, and you coming, repaying the years that the locusts have eaten. And, and while you're on a roll, just go all the way, Lord, and fill me with your spirit. My heart is overwhelmed this morning, Lord, as I consider this great, incredible love that you have for us. You don't owe us repayment of any kind, but you're lavish and you're generous forgiveness. And so you bring repayment of all those years. Lord, I know some people 
who have such great big holes in their lives that today they're doubting whether you can repay it. There's nothing that seems to fit the scale of what they have lost. So their hearts are having a hard time coming in your direction. Oh God, in your goodness, would you be, would you be patient and merciful and kind? Would you give them the gift of faith that just kind of leads them, draws them? We'll leave the repayment to you, whatever form it takes. But now we're asking that you would give us your Holy Spirit in fullness. Give us all of you we can take and then some. Remake us. I don't like the way the book of Joel starts, but we sure like the way that it ends with us and you very close. So we draw close to you today ask that you would draw close to us. Come so close that you fill us, we pray. My friends, go with the assurance of the love of God. Look for the repayment. It's coming. But listen for his spirit. Because his spirit stands ready to fill your heart. Signs and wonders, who cares? As long as I get that God, right, and all of his fullness, we look for him because he's looking for you. He wants to be close to you. May you experience that closeness with him, I pray. In Christ's name, amen. You are dismissed.